Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Silkowski. Thank you for joining us today on Oral History. I just, again, want to thank the folks that have been here from the beginning and have listened to every episode, have been with us, have supported us financially and through just listening. I mentioned two weeks ago how privileged I was to be a part of something like this where I get to talk and you get to listen and hopefully we both walk away a little bit encouraged and Two weeks ago, I shared the beginnings of what I'll call the CVC years. It was CVC years part one. CVC is a, a church in Northeast Ohio, Cuyahoga Valley Church, that um, I was called to serve at in 2005. It's where I met my wife. It's where we adopted our daughter. You can hear those stories in previous uh, episodes of oral history and kind of get some context. But I want to talk to you about just some of the challenges and the the ups and downs and fun times and things that went on at CVC. I mentioned two weeks ago that when I started at CVC, there were two thriving ministries taking place side by side. There was AM Church, as we called it, which was a Friday night service at 530, and then Sunday morning services at 815, 930, and 11. And uh, we had an evening service on Sunday nights that started as one service, and it was called 707. It was a young adult ministry, 18 to 35-year-olds, and um, 707 grew so fast and so broadly in Northeast Ohio that it was uh, kind of iconic. I would go into a bathroom at a restaurant or a convenience store, and there would be uh, bumper stickers of 707, everybody within uh, Northeast Ohio kind of knew of or about 707 or had attended at some point. And in, in fact, 707 had grown to the point where it was larger than the church that I was part of. The I, Again, it's all one church, but the ministry I was a part of, the AM church, um, was kind of hovering around 1,200. 707 had grown to almost 2,000 people. They had three services on a Sunday night and one on a Tuesday night at an alternate location. And God was just really moving in young adults at that time. And it was the teaching and it was the worship. It was also attractional in nature. And and that was a term that kind of came out of the late 90s from large churches like Willow Creek and places like that where um, it was about the production. And it wasn't about the production for the production's sake, but but it was about the production for the sake of having the gospel preached and heard. And Pastor Dan Burgoyne preached the gospel, the 707 worship team, all very good friends of mine, uh, led worship, and it grew. It grew fast, and it grew through technology. Um, I mentioned two weeks ago that they broke out intelligent lights and five screens and smoke in the room and uh, image magnification in the room and just on and on recordings. And they really pushed 
AM Church to adopt some of that, some of that technology. And I liken what happened in AM Church oftentimes to what I call trying to change tires on the bus while it's rolling down the road. In church, life never really stops. There's always a service the following Saturday that you have to be ready for. So no matter what needs to be accomplished, it's got to be accomplished within those six days before the next service. And for us, that was a real challenge at times. I can recall one week in particular where my first assistant, Tom Sawyer, and I, yes, He's heard the jokes, but yes, that is his real name. Um, he and I had to unplug, disconnect, and basically rip out a majority of the video system in the church. When I started, there were two standard definition video switchers in the church. 707 typically used one, and on our side of things, AM Church used one. And when 707 used theirs, they also used one for their broadcast recording, which they did prior to the advent of streaming on the internet through local cable channels. They used the second switcher to put words and images from cameras on three of the screens and then moving images on two of the screens. And all of that had to be pulled out and changed when the lead pastor uh, at the time came to me and said, we want to change everything and we want to go to a high definition system. We want to spend some money. We want to buy the right cameras. We want to buy the right uh, switcher for all of this. And I spent the time investigating what we needed and consulted a friend and settled on a, a new video switcher that was light years beyond where we were. And But about... 14 pieces of equipment and about a mile of cable, so much so that a, a portion of the booth about four feet by three feet was about two and a half feet high, stacked with pieces of cable. And we just basically gutted, Tom and I gutted the system on a Monday, and we knew we had a deadline. We had to be done by Friday. We really had to be done by Thursday, if at all possible, because of rehearsal. But we had a lot to accomplish in those few days. And that's why I call it changing tires on the bus as it's moving down the road, because the the train just doesn't stop. We could possibly have gone a week without doing stuff, but we set a tight deadline and we set up a plan and we um, took to it and we got it done. And it was that kind of change that was going on all the time. I mentioned two weeks ago that when I started, we adapted and you kind of put your foot Print and you put your mark on a ministry just based on the things that you're comfortable with, the equipment that you know, the, the things that you have grown accustomed to. Um, and I did that early on. I mentioned the fact that when CVC started, their video ministry was a gentleman with a VHS camcorder, and we kind of stopped that and then waited and then kind of folded into what 707 was doing with technology, and then eventually launched out on our own when we put in this high-def system. And we did this all the time um, on staff. I had one volunteer 
very early on, a dear sweet man by the name of Adam. Adam helped me greatly through a number of video projects. He was a brilliant editor, a very creative man. He's actually done a uh, a movie, a full-length feature movie with a, a group of friends that's quite good. Uh, I'd recommend it. You can text me or message me, and I'll, I'll give you the name of it. But Adam would come in every week, and in the process of just growing and shaping and molding this ministry, Adam would come in and just do double takes because something else had changed. Um, he was the mainstay of the sound ministry for the five or six years prior to my coming on staff. And as volunteers, they didn't change anything. They just did what they had and they moved on and they just kept going. But when I came, things started to change and things changed on a weekly basis. And I used to kind of have fun blowing Adam's mind with some new change that had taken place. And that that switcher was one of them. Um, what was really interesting prior to Im implementing that switcher, we had kind of gotten into a hybrid mode where we were still using the old switcher with one of the new switchers, and we actually had had three of the standard def switchers at one point. Two of which were sitting on a shelf. One one wasn't working. One was in good shape, but just wasn't being used. And I can recall. One Sunday morning, again, when Tom Sawyer was was my assistant, I was actually teaching a baptism class during the 9.30 service. And I was part of that from well into the first service until the third service had begun. And so I, I taught the class, had no idea what was going on, but I walked into the booth about midway through the message of the third service, and my wife, my lovely wife Larissa, was doing presentation. She was training a volunteer named Mike, and Tom was overseeing things since I was teaching the baptism class. And I walked into three just panicked, panicked looks on these volunteers' faces. And my first question was, what's going on? And they looked at me and explained that one of the volunteers had spilled an entire cup, not just a small cup, but a big cup, like 12 ounces or 14 ounces. He had spilled an entire cup of coffee into the switcher, right in where the buttons were, and it froze. They couldn't switch between sources. They couldn't change anything. And for whatever reason, they were in about an 80-20 mix between two sources. So they kind of had a little ghost of the PowerPoint on the screen, and they had a little ghost of the pastor from a camera on the screen and, and no ability to make it look any better. And I walked into the booth, and the first thing I said was, well, do any of the buttons still work? And they said, yeah. So I said, well, first thing, let's just make sure that what's on program, the 80% of the presentation is the same as what's underneath and then it'll even though it's 80 and 20 it'll look like one image so we did that and people in the audience suddenly noticed that things didn't look quite as strange and over the period of the next 15 or 20 minutes it was change literally changing tires on the bus while it was moving down the road the presentation person my wife kind of slid aside she stayed with the computer and continued to make changes while the pastor was uh while he was actually teaching. So 
figure, kind of put, wrap your head around this. The pastors at CVC taught for about 35 minutes, and they were already 10 minutes into this when I walked in the room. So we've got about 15 minutes maybe before he's about ready to wrap up. And so she continues on following him through his presentation during his preaching, the pastor that is, and I sent Tom down the hall to grab that other switcher. And the first thing we did was, as I mentioned, we got the, the two sources on the switcher to be the same. Well, then we had a box that we could route around the switchers by punching some buttons and just kind of take the switcher out, but still put the image on the screen. The only difference was the audience would see a little blink of black and when it happened. So we made that change. And now all of a sudden that switcher was no longer in the path. And the audience still was watching what my wife was putting on the screen for the pastor. So we got underneath, I labeled all the cables, I unplugged everything. I'm laying on my back under the desk. Tom is lifting the old switcher out of a hole that had been cut into the counter and then placing the one that he'd gone and gotten from an office in. And I'm re-plugging everything in as we then get it powered up and test it to make sure everything's working the way the switcher that now is drowning in coffee was working. And then we use that box to route back through the switcher. Again, one small second of black as it blinked while they were getting, as the pastor was getting close to his end of the message. And by the time the pastor was finished, we had changed the tires on the bus. We had swapped out a switcher in about a 15 minute span of time. And I don't say any of that to, to sound proud. It was just the nature of church ministry. It doesn't stop. And you don't want to be a distraction. Yeah, the audience saw a little ghost of an image for a while and then two blinks of black, but for the most part, that th third service that day had a screen that did exactly what it had always done. It put up the scriptures and it put up the questions and the bullet points for the message, and they didn't know any different, despite the fact that there was chaos going on in the booth. And it's just kind of how we survived. I can recall times where my wife and I were, there was one Easter where my wife and I, we were re-soldering connections for our lighting behind the stage at about two o'clock the morning before Easter. And it was because services were gonna continue and we had to get something fixed that wasn't working the night before. I had one Saturday night where uh, a piece of gear within the audio system went down and we had no highs coming out of the sound system. The worship leader sounded like he was coming out of the subs and the woofers on the, on the, on the cabinets only and it was just muffled and sounded strange and we had to pull a piece of gear out of the basement and kind of cripple our children's ministry for a weekend. I made sure after that that we had that piece of gear duplicated in the rack where it wasn't work, it wasn't being used. It was plugged in, it was warmed up, and it was ready to go in case that problem ever happened again. All we had to do was unplug a series of plugs out of the back, move them to the other unit, and if that unit died, which it did on a couple of occasions, we would pull that one out, we would get it fixed, and then we'd kind of swap them back. And I took the term, the master of redundancy. If we had any 
place within the building where there was a single point of failure. There was always a piece of gear that was in the rack waiting to be used in case that one piece of gear went bad. And it worked. We had multiple computers. We had multiple pieces of gear every weekend. I can recall one Sunday morning walking into the booth and if you've ever worked around electronics, you know the smell of burning transistors. There's just no smell like it. In fact, my dad, when I was growing up, smelled like that because he worked around electronics. He worked in pinball machines and that sort of thing all the time. And that's how my dad smelled, and I know that smell so well. But what it means when you smell it is something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. There's a joke within uh, kind of road gigs that every piece of gear has a certain quantity of smoke built into the piece of gear, whatever it is, sound equipment, musical equipment, lighting equipment, video equipment, whatever it is. And the goal is to just never let the smoke out. And and really with that, it's a funny way of saying, just don't burn up the equipment. And we walked in one day to that smell and had to reroute and replace equipment and swap things out again right before service started we've there were a number of occasions where we had power outages that would cause things to go out and in the lovely world of computers you have to start things back up in a particular order for everything to work the same way so to this day there's a circa 1981 I would guess um, Realistic, which was a brand that was sold at Radio Shack. Go look it up on the internet because they don't exist anymore. But uh, Realistic Clock Radio sitting in the booth at CVC. I haven't been there since 2019, so well over uh, three years now. But that Clock Radio still is in the booth, and it's there for one specific reason— and Steve James, they're my successor, he's the technical director there now. It's the canary in the coal mine. Now, years and years ago, they would take a canary and put it in a cage when they went down into a coal mine because if there were ever problems with the oxygen levels or ga other gas levels in the mine, the canary would die first and they would know that was their their harbinger, their warning that they needed to get out before they succumbed to whatever that was. So they would carry a canary down into the coal mine. That clock radio, that 1981 realistic clock radio is there for one specific purpose. And that is, is if there's ever a power outage, that clock radio is going to blink. Unlike in any other newer piece of gear that's connected to the internet or anything of that nature where it corrects itself and resets the time and sets the time zones on its own and that sort of thing, this clock radio is going to give it up. It's going to be the thing that you know there's been a power outage. And then there's a matter of just making sure everything gets restarted in the appropriate order before you go into a, a, a series of services trusting something that may not be working properly. So these were normal situations. These were normal situations at CVC all the time. Um, and it was a challenge for the volunteers every week to just make sure that everything went on. It was a challenge for me as their leader to make sure that everything went on and to prepare for the next thing that might go wrong. And um, it was part of the reason why... I 
eventually left. Um, toward the end of my tenure, I began to carry the weight of every service so personally that if everything didn't go perfectly, if everything, and I, I'm going to say that again, if everything didn't go perfectly, I felt like I had failed. I felt like God wasn't able to move. He wasn't able to speak to people. It was me putting God in a very, very small box and putting myself on a very high pedestal, thinking I had a lot more control than I did. And it caused me to treat my volunteers in a way that was difficult. If I think back all the way to my time at KTSC, and you can listen to the podcast about the KTSC TV years, I was I was a believer when I worked at KTSC TV, but I was a very unrefined believer, and I was a very harsh taskmaster. In fact, one of the girls at KTSC who was uh, one of the managers with me, her job was to, and I and I don't mean anything by girl. She was a very young young woman, but. Um, her job was to make sure that the volunteers didn't leave because I would demand such perfection from my camera operators and my technical directors and my sound people that I would yell at them on headsets at times. And she would kind of smooth everybody's feathers over after we were done. And that wasn't right of me. It wasn't right of me to act that way. It wasn't right of me to put that responsibility on her. But again, I was a very unrefined Christian at that time. So by the time I get to CVC, I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm growing deeper in my walk with the Lord. But I still had this persona that to this day, many people will tell you they referred to me as Sunday Jeff. There was there was the weekday Jeff who was kind of laid back and would talk to you and would be kind and tell you all your good points and encourage. And there was a, a, a lot good about that guy. But on Sunday, I became that taskmaster again because I was holding the very fate of every service in my hands. And I was demanding a lot from my volunteers. I had one volunteer. She approached my third assistant yeah, in a period of about five years, I had three assistants. One left because of difficulties and things that I did wrong. One left because he wanted to go to the military, and the third one was there until I was gone. But one of the volunteers came to the, my assistant at the time, Melissa, and she said to Melissa, she said, I don't think Jeff likes me. And Melissa said, well, why do you think that? And she said, well, he, he never compliments me, and he only tells me the things that I do wrong. And Melissa came to me and said, did you mean to act that way? And I said, no, I, honestly, I just was trying to help her understand that there are things that need to be better. And Melissa really challenged me on this because the very first weekend that Melissa produced, producing meant you were in charge of the tech booth. You were in charge of Thursday rehearsal, helping the sound guys get ready. And then on Sunday morning, you were in charge and it afforded me to do other things at CVC, um, be part of the greeting ministry downstairs or teach a class or take a weekend off. And so Melissa's very first week of, of producing, 
we got together the Tuesday after the weekend was over, and I had shadowed her the whole time and had kind of taken mental notes as we were going along. So we get together on Tuesday, and I sat down, and for about 90 minutes, I told her everything that she did wrong, every little thing that she could improve upon. And then at the end of it, I gave her an A-, and she just looked completely shocked. She said, you spent 90 minutes telling me all the things that I did wrong, and then you gave me an A-? I said, yes, you did a very good job. She said, well, you might have led with that. And Melissa was really good at helping me know how to be a better pastor, a better human being, a better uh, mentor, a better m manager. And, and I learned some of those things. But that Sunday, Jeff was demanding perfection of himself, me, and demanding perfection of others. And again, it's kind of what undid me as I approached the end of my career at CVC. Um, we're going to cover that next time, kind of talk to you about how all of that came about and what led to my leaving CVC and coming to Refuge Community Church, where I'm at now, and how things are different now. And they really are. Um, God has really refined some things in me and changed me and taught me some things about myself and allowed me to grow in some areas, difficult things, but at the same time, things that I would not change no matter how difficult they were because the, the byproduct of the difficulty was that I grew closer to Christ and I grew closer to the people around me. So we'll cover that uh, in the next couple of episodes. So there will be a part three to the CVC years. But right now, I just want to spend some time and I want to share with you, as I always do, the purpose for what we do. And I mentioned it two episodes ago. The, the reason I really do this is so that my daughter someday can have access to these recordings so that she can share these stories, so she can grow and learn from these things, and she can see that her old man, so to speak, is not perfect, uh, is a fallen, sinful human being who needs God's grace and redemption and forgiveness on a daily basis, both because of how I approach God and because of how I approach people around me. And I try to be transparent, I try to be honest for Lex's sake, that she'll know that, yeah, my dad wasn't perfect, but throughout his lifetime, he was always trying to grow closer to being more and more like Jesus throughout his lifetime. And someday when she's listening to this, I hope that she gets that message and that she can share that message with children and grandchildren of hers. So that's why, that's why I do what I do in oral history, but I also take the opportunity every time to say, you're listening right now. You're maybe not Lex, but you're listening right now. And some of the things that I've said have led you to believe that I was a harsh dude at times, even as a believer, and yes, that's true. I was a harsh dude at times, even when I was a believer in Jesus Christ. I, you don't get saved, you don't give your life to Christ, and immediately be all that you're ever going to be 
uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a, a lifetime, however long it is from the time of your salvation to the time of your going to be with Jesus, there's this growth process that's a matter of climbing a few steps and sliding back a few and f- climbing some more steps and sliding back a few. And hopefully at the end of your life, the progression of your life the fruit of your life shows that you're more like Jesus at the end than you were at the beginning. If that's not true, then you need to examine yourself and see, have you really surrendered your life to Christ? But at the end of your life, if your life looks more and more like that of Jesus Christ, then that's the goal of the Christian walk. Now, that doesn't save you, that is the goal of the Christian walk is to be more and more like Jesus all the time. So if you're listening and you don't know Christ, your first step is you need to know him. You need to give your life to him. And you need to know that every person that's ever surrendered their life to Christ was right where you're at right now. Hurt, broken, looking for answers, not knowing where the answers are coming from, hoping that there's something more in this in this life than just trudging your way through it for 70-some years and then dying and going to be worm food. There is a God. And atheists don't believe this, but there is a God. And He is in charge. And He does love you beyond anything that you can ever expect or imagine. Now, A lot of people who don't know Christ, who don't know God in this intimate way, see him as cruel and as harsh. And he's he's not. There are stories in the Bible of his being just and his dealing with things that were sinful. But it's because of us. I believe in a, in a, in a principle, in a, a doctrine, in a theology of what's called original sin, that sin entered the world through a man and his wife named Adam and Eve in the beginning of time. And since then, every human being is born with this sin nature built into them. And you can see it manifest in a two-year-old. No parent is ever going to tell you that their children doesn't have a sinful nature when despite all the cooing and loving talk and kindness that parents provide for the first two years, there isn't a point at which a two-year-old child isn't going to just burst into a fit of selfishness and be a sinful little human being. And so we're born this way, it's, it's innate in us, but it's not uncorrectable, it's not unforgivable, it's not something that can't be changed and can't be redeemed, and it can be redeemed when we realize that God's in control and we're not, and that He has a much better plan for us than we could ever have for ourselves, and He loves us so much more than we would ever expect or imagine. And it just takes us to getting to the ends of ourselves and coming to him and saying, Lord, please forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for my sins. And I turn to you as the one who can make my life all that it possibly could be. And if that's you, do that tonight. Today is the day of your salvation. 
Open your heart to Christ. Open your heart to what Jesus did on the cross for you. And when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, God's plan at that point was to send his son to die on a cross so that we all could know him as Lord and Savior. That John 3.16 in the end zone, that card in the end zone at a football game, points to the fact that God so loves the world and he so loves people that he sacrificed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have access to God. Because God has to deal with sin and there has to be redemption for sin. And it was Christ's death on the cross that allows us, if we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, to have Christ's righteousness and for us to spend eternity in heaven with God. Hell is not just a place of torment and and harshness. It is a complete separation from God. And God doesn't wish that upon anyone. He wants everyone, John 3.16 again, he wants everyone to know his son and to surrender their life because he has the best in store for you. So today, If you're hearing that and understanding that for the very first time, that is what we call the gospel. That's the good news. That's what gospel means. And you can accept it. Just turn your life over to Christ. Say, I'm done trying to do this on my own. Please forgive me for all all the times I've tried to do it on my own and where I've rejected you. And please be the Lord. Be in charge of my life. Be my Savior. Save me from myself. Save me from my sin. Save me from hell and do in and through me what you want to do, Lord. That's the cry of a a baby believer, of somebody coming to faith. And it's at that moment in time when, when that happens, when you bow your knee and bow your head and you surrender before God that... All the angels in heaven stand up and listen and wait and then applaud. They applaud what has taken place because somebody else has been redeemed and somebody else has come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So today is the day of your salvation. If you're a believer, share this good news. Share this good news today because you have the best news in the world Share it with somebody who needs to hear it. Share this podcast with somebody who needs to hear it. And fast forward to the end here and let them hear this. So I just want to pray before we go, and I want to thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for listening. It blows my mind that people stop and listen to me talk. And I just pray that you'll be blessed. So Father God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for redeeming people like me, the harshness, the the taskmaster, the hard person that people think doesn't like them. You've changed and are continuing to change that in me each and every day. Father, use me to your honor and glory. Use the people who are hearing this to your honor and glory. The believers, that they would share you, and the unbelievers, that they would come to know you. Open eyes and ears and melt hearts and change lives and draw all men to yourself. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we look forward every day to what you're going to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being a part of this. Again, go to Arl. 
A-U-R-A-L-History.com. You can check out our website. You can listen to all the podcasts there. You can subscribe to podcasts on the platforms they're available on. You can help support us through Patreon. And you can text or email me and just let me know what's on your heart. So thank you so much. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Aural History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.